Well, good evening. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14? And uh, we want to welcome those who are listening by radio right now on Coast to Coast, 300 radio stations around America. Would you please welcome those who are listening now? Fear, apprehension, nervousness, those are words that describe our world since September 11th. Uh, In fact, on the news last night was a whole special on dealing with fear, coping with fear. We've even learned new words in our vocabulary the last few weeks, words that have been around but words we weren't familiar with. For instance, not many people heard of the word Taliban until a few weeks ago. If you'd ask the average person on the street what that is, they would go, what are you talking about? Afghanistan, we've heard of that country, but, but, but a lot of us just thought, well, that's where rugs come from. <laughs> Cipro is a word that is now in our vocabulary. Anthrax, most people thought that was a train you take from city to city, not a disease that you could catch. And it leaves us asking, well, now what's going to happen? What next? Who's next? What if I'm next? Shel Silverstein is an author that writes children's books, children's poetry, and he wrote a little poem called What If? It says, Last night while I lay thinking here, some what ifs crawled inside my ear and pranced and partied all night long and sang their same old what if song. What if they've closed the swimming pool? What if I'm dumb in school? What if I get beat up? What if there's poison in my cup? What if I start to cry? What if I just get sick and die? What if I flunk the test? What if green hair grows on my chest? What if nobody likes me? What if a bolt of lightning strikes me? What if I don't grow taller? What if my head starts getting smaller? What if the fish won't bite? What if the wind tears up my kite? What if they start a war? What if my parents get divorced? What if the bus is late? What if my teeth don't grow in straight? What if I tear my pants? What if I never learn to dance? Everything seems swell, and then the nighttime what-ifs strike again. Well, not only are kids asking what if, but politicians, parents, pundits are all asking what if, what's next, what do I do? Time magazine reported recently that Army-Navy stores are now selling out of their stocks of gas masks, doctors are being besieged with requests for antibiotics, and people are scouring the web for places to buy water filters and protective garb. All the while, all those who are into the Y2K thing are saying, See? (laughs) At least those who didn't sell all the stuff that they stored up. There are even nuclear pills that some are buying. Those that live by nuclear power facilities are buying nuclear pills. Potassium iodide 
It uh, inhibits, it restricts the thyroid's intake of radioactive iodine to prevent thyroid cancer in case of an attack. This week, the government passed an anti-terrorism bill giving the government more freedom, law enforcement to search homes, conduct wiretaps, monitor web and internet activity, and perform, if need be, undercover stings. Now we're worried about the economy. Since September 11th, it seems that the recession we were worrying about has tipped its scales and we're definitely there and looking down a very rocky economic road. Heart trouble. Jesus spoke about men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things that are coming upon the earth. That's what we're looking at. That's what our world is dealing with. Chuck Colson adds some very needed insight. He writes, Life is not like a book. It is not logical or sensible or orderly. It's a mess most of the time. And our theology must be lived out in the midst of that mess. And now is a time and an opportunity for you and I to live out our theology, our Christian principles, in the midst of the mess, the heart trouble that is all around in our culture. On this night that Jesus gives these words to his disciples, he is aware that the disciples' world is about to become unraveled. They're about to experience a mess. The days ahead will be tough for them. And he wants to comfort them. Instead of worrying about his own suffering of the cross, he's becoming the servant of all, seeking to comfort the disciples. Basically, in this paragraph of John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, Jesus tells his men, stop doing something that you're already doing and here's why you ought to stop it. That's the sermon in a nutshell. I guess we could go home now. That's it. But we want to look at it more carefully. Stop what you're doing and here's reasons to stop it. Let not, Jesus said, your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice that uh, Jesus begins this section with a command. It's a direct command. He said, let not your heart be troubled. The command is written, is put in um, in the Greek language, in the present passive imperative, which simply means... You are to stop doing an activity that you've already begun. So we could translate this, stop being stressed out. Or as one translation renders it, let not your heart continue to be agitated. They were already agitated. They were already nervous. They were already troubled. Jesus is saying, 
Stop that. Cease from that. We all know by now, after years of research, that stress and anxiety is very unhealthy. Our doctors warn us of it. Take vacations, they say. Take it easy, they warn. For a very good reason. A British clinic examined 500 patients and found that a third of all of the visual problems they saw in the clinic were due directly to stress. Another independent study, Northwestern University, Dr. Leonard Fosdick, found that anxiety reduces the flow of saliva in the mouth so that the natural acids of the mouth are not properly neutralized, accentuating tooth decay. Another study of 5,000 university students from 21 different universities found that if you stress, if you worry, your grades are always lower. And many medical studies for many years have found out that anxiety breaks down our resistance to disease. All of that because of trouble, stress, anxiety. So, I guess if you put it all together, if you want to be a blind, diseased, flunky with no teeth, (laughs) stress out, man. Now, Jesus knew that his disciples were troubled. That's why he used this present passive imperative. Stop doing what you're already doing. And why were they troubled? Well, they had plenty of reason in the natural to be troubled. First of all, Jesus uh, predicted that one of them would betray him. That raised their anxiety level. Then he said, Peter, you're going to deny me. In fact, he said, you're all going to deny me. Raised their anxiety level. But above and beyond anything else Jesus said that night was his prediction, I'm leaving you. And where I'm going, you cannot come. This just put him over the edge. Their hearts were troubled because of all those things, but principally because Jesus said he was leaving. Remember in Job, it says, People are born for trouble as predictably as the sparks fly upward from a fire. That's Job 5. In other words, trouble is a natural part of this world. In the world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. And our hearts become so easily troubled, don't they? I mean, we can be fine and one bit of information can just do us in for the rest of the week. Just so you know, Jesus understood trouble. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, He was troubled in spirit. And testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And if you were to go back even further to chapter 11, when Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and stops at Bethany at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who is now dead and in the grave and decaying, in verse 32, When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, Jesus When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Being fully God but fully man, he knew what trouble was like. He was in all points tempted like we are. 
He knew what that stress felt like. And in the natural realm, there are plenty of, let's call them good reasons, natural reasons why we should be troubled. There's health troubles, there's family troubles, troubles with kids, troubles with parents, there's financial troubles, there's boyfriend and girlfriend troubles. Now there's terrorist troubles and anthrax troubles and Taliban troubles on top of all of that. National Institute of Mental Health has reported anxiety is now the most frequently reported mental health problem. In fact, 13 million, 13 million Americans spend the greater part of their day stressed, worried, filled with anxiety over trouble. Now, why am I telling you all of that? For this reason, I believe that Christians ought to be realists. Not out-of-touch idealists, not pessimists, realists. We ought to be, of all people, the most realistic about the troubles of this world and the most realistic about God's solutions to them. In fact, those solutions won't mean much unless we're realistic about the truth of the trouble. Some that I meet are idealistic. They're out of touch. They look at life, though they're Christians, they look at it through rose-colored glasses. Everything's great. I just have to confess it. And uh, I'll just live in perpetual denial of the real issue. It's a world of make-believe. And they're very dangerous people to be around because when their bubble pops and realism sets in and something bad actually happens, their life unravels quickly. Then there are pessimists, you know, you, you, you know the kind, always negative, always cynical. Satan's always out to get them. It's always bad out there. That's the other end of the pendulum. You know, most people go into the donut shops and love the donuts. They, they notice the hole. That's all they notice. <laughs> What's that? It's a defect. Now, pessimists think that God created the world in six days and on the seventh he was laid off. Everything always has a negative connotation, but not a realist. A realist looks at the world and says, we do live in a fallen world. There is sin. It does abound. Man, by nature, is wicked, is depraved by nature, needs a Savior. And in the midst of all of that stuff, God has real answers, real solutions, and a real plan to one day take care of it. So we ought to be, of all people, most realistic. There are troubles. Our hearts can easily get weighed down, but there are solutions to them. Talk about realism. I, I heard of a woman whose husband died, and she ran his obituary in the local paper. Three words, Bernie is dead. Now the editor counseled her, and said, you know, I don't know if the issue is financial or what, but you're allowed six words for $25. Oh, she said, great, put Bernie is dead, Toyota for sale. <laughs> that might be a little too blunt for some people, but in other words, he's saying, this is a sad event, but you know what? Life has to go on. There are plenty of reasons to be troubled. But there are better reasons not to be troubled, not to continue that cycle. 
Not to perpetuate the anxiety. When you can grab a hold of certain truths, there's enough uh, truth in that, there's enough hope in that truth that you ought to be able to stop. And that's what we want to look at now. Not only this direct command, but let's, let's look at the rest of it. The divine cure is also given by Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled. That's the command. Here's the cure. Here's the reasons. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know what I love about Jesus? Is He never tosses out a command without giving you a good reason for it. Something to bolster the faith. You know, there's nothing glib about it. It's not just a piece of of uh, bad advice or a slap on the back. You remember a few years ago, it was Bobby McFerrin who wrote a very famous song. It was, it was, a, it was a happy tune. Don't worry, be happy. And in the song he says, In every life we have some trouble. When you worry, you make it double. So don't worry, be happy. Everybody loved the song. I listened to it again recently. And it was fun, and it was funny, and it was cute, but there, there was nothing attached to it in terms of resources. There, there weren't really good reasons that I could hang anything on. Jesus gives you three. And this is the cure for heart trouble. Three reasons not to continue to let your heart be troubled. Reason number one, because of who you know. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, equality with God is strongly suggested by that word, by that phrase. And just as you have trusted God, you have every reason to trust me. An amplified version renders it this way. Do not let your hearts be distressed, agitated. You believe in and adhere to and rely on God. So believe in and adhere to and rely on me also. And why shouldn't they? When had Jesus ever failed them before? When they needed food on the hillside, who was it that multiplied the loaves and the fishes? When the storm raged on the Sea of Galilee, they thought they were going to die. Who calmed it? It was Jesus. When Lazarus was dead, who got him back up? Jesus. So they had every reason to trust Him. You believe in God. I've hung around you now. Believe also in me. Do you realize that you and I actually have more reason to trust Jesus than even they did? Do you realize that? We have more reason to trust in Jesus than they did. Here's why. Because we're on this side of the cross and we see the whole picture now. They were on the other side. They didn't get it all. They didn't see the big picture yet. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to be crucified, which would buy salvation and raised from the dead, which would pave the way to glory. They didn't see that. But we see it. So we can look back and if the disciples were here or if we could be transported back into that upper room, we would be saying, Peter, James, John, the rest of you guys... It's okay. You can trust Him. The story turns out great. But now let's turn the finger toward us. We don't always see the big picture, if ever, to what God is doing or allowing in our lives, do we? We see a, a, just a small fraction of it. 
and, and we get troubled and worried. God, do you know what you're doing? It's because we don't see the big picture. We're thinking of the temporal. God is thinking of the eternal. We're thinking of personal comfort. He's thinking of personal character. He sees the big picture. You heard about the tourist at the Grand Canyon who was photographing it, got a little too close, lost his footing, and tumbled over the edge. Luckily, he scrambled and grabbed a hold of a bush and was hanging on for life on a sheer cliff, ready to drop at a second's notice. And he lifted up his voice, and for the first time in his life, he cried out to heaven, Is anybody up there? And he heard a voice. Deep, calm voice right out of heaven. Yes, I'm here. Can you help me please? The man cried. The answer back, yes, I can. Do you believe? Yes, yes, I believe. Do you have faith? Oh yeah, I have strong faith. And the voice said, then just let go and you'll be fine. And there was a tense pause and the man cried out, Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> You've heard that one. <laughs> Folks, there comes a time in your life where you either believe it or you don't believe it. Where you're going to actually let go and, and, and actually trust God and have faith in Him. There comes a time in life where you're sort of at the wire and you either believe Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, or you don't believe it. It makes all the difference in the world if you do or you don't. It is faith in Him that stops your heart from being troubled, that calms the anxiety-ridden soul. Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Dr. Billy Graham, said, I have learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. So that's reason number one. That's part of the cure, because of who you know. Believe in God, believe also in me. Second reason, because of where you're going. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. The Father's house is Jesus' own metaphor for heaven. It's the place He came from, the place He was going to, heaven. According to Jesus, heaven is real. It's not a figment of some imagination. It's not a metaphor that just means, you know, uh, you know a lot of people think, well, heaven and hell is right here on earth, and when you die, you're in oblivion. You make heaven or hell now. Not according to the Bible. Jesus spoke about life after death, heaven and hell as real places. 532 times the Bible speaks of heaven and always as a matter-of-fact place. As matter-of-fact as this earth is. As real as this earthly existence is to us. Well, what is heaven going to be like? We have a glimpse here. It will be a place of variety. Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many mansions, or better translation, Many dwelling places, many places to hang out, abiding places. Many rooms, the word can be translated. You might even, in a modern rendering, call it apartments or condos. That's an interesting spin on it. In my father's house, there are many condos, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, and I think here's the intent, along with another one I'll show you in a moment. 
There's room for everyone. There's lots of places to hang out and things to do. I do not plan to sit on a cloud and play some dumb harp for the rest of my life in a white robe. That doesn't even appeal to me. A guitar, maybe. A harp, no. But in my father's house, there are many abiding places. Now, with that in mind, I want you to keep a marker here and turn back to the book of Revelation we get a glimpse at perhaps something else Jesus is alluding to about the place you're going to go called heaven. Verse 16, Revelation 21. Just go to the end of the book, turn left a chapter, you're there. Verse 16, The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, its breadth, its height are equal. And he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. The New Living Translation says, It was in the form of a cube. Its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. So picture a cube. That's 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400, all sides, a perfect 1,400-mile cube. That's the new Jerusalem John sees coming out of heaven toward the earth, a wild-looking city. The diameter of the moon is 2,160 miles. The diameter of the new Jerusalem is 2,600 miles, so it's slightly bigger in diameter than the moon. And it's even measured. It doesn't seem metaphoric to me. It seems literal because it's measured. That would make it 2,250,000 square miles or 15,000 times bigger than the city and the environs of London, England. Take London times 15,000. That's how big it is. According to the scientist Henry Morris, he guessed that 20 billion people could inhabit this cube, this New Jerusalem, and assuming that 25% of the city is used for dwelling places of people and the rest for whatever else, streets, parks, public buildings, whatever. He calculates each person will have a cubicle block with 75 acres on each face to call their own. And if you go through this portion of the book of Revelation, it seems that the streets not only run horizontally but vertically. That would allude to multidimensional travel. In my father's house, there are many mansions, many rooms, many places to go and things to do. Now go back to... uh, John. It's a place that is personalized. For Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, here's the disciples. They are so worried that Jesus is leaving. How could you leave? But why was he leaving? Because he was going to go prepare heaven for them if they only knew. I'm going to prepare a place. Yeah, okay. You know, just... Now, think of this. It took God six days to create the earth, right? With its perfect uh, balance in the biosphere of so many species, perfect balance in the the atmosphere that we can breathe, uh, 79% oxygen, uh, 20% nitrogen, 1% variant gas. It's just perfect. Six days to do all that. He's been working on heaven now for 2,000 years. Can you imagine what that place looks like? I go to prepare a place for you. One of the greatest things I ever heard was a little girl walking down a country road with her father. 
There were no neon signs. There were no street lights. It was just the stars. And she looked up and said, Daddy, I've been thinking, if heaven looks this good on the wrong side, can you imagine how good it looks on the right side? I go to prepare a place for you. What was Jesus when he was on the earth? What occupation? Carpenter. Now he's a custom builder. He's building this for you. Custom fit. That's a good reason not to be troubled with the stuff on the earth. Also, heaven is a place of relationship. Notice he calls it my father's house. Jesus doesn't refer to it as heaven. You know why? Because heaven is so sterile sounding. My father's house is relational. And that's what's going to make heaven great. You're going to be with your father. You're going to be with your savior. There's going to be an intimate face-to-face relationship. You'll be with Him. And by the way, you'll also be with others. You'll be reunited with all of your loved ones who have ever received Jesus Christ personally. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. So I kind of think of heaven a lot like home. What makes home so precious, so wonderful? It's not what you have in it. It's whom you have in it. It's the relationships. It's the people. Now, since heaven is the Father's house, it's a children's home. All the children of God will be there. Because it's the Father's house, it must be a place of great joy, great love, great peace, great beauty. And it is because John, in writing about the description of heaven in Revelation, sort of runs out of metaphors. Runs out of descriptive words. Paul is caught up into the third heaven and he says, what I saw and what I heard, well, I can't even tell you about it. It was so amazing. It's unlawful for a person to utter what I experienced. So he didn't even write about it. John, he's describing heaven and he comes to a point where he starts having to describe what isn't there. Just so we'll go, oh, Again, I should have had to keep a marker there, but go back to Revelation 21, just for a moment. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. The absence of all negative, bad, hurtful things will be heaven. No hospitals, no funerals, no broken homes, no broken hearts, no rehabilitation clinics, no handicaps, no Alzheimer's disease, no cancer treatments, no wheelchairs, no blindness, no deafness, no terrorism. And Paul, when he writes of heaven, says, Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. That's a good reason, isn't it, 
not to have heart trouble. If we really believe that. That's why Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, used to always teach his students. He said, whenever you speak of heaven, I want your face to light up in glory and excitement. When you speak of hell, your normal face will do. (laughs) But when you speak of heaven, let it shine in your face. There's a third reason not to let our hearts be troubled, because of what's ahead. Now, I know that sort of sounds a lot like the second one, but it's not. Here's why. Jesus continues, and he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, and he said, If it weren't so, I would have told you, so it is so, then I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What is that referring to? It's referring to the rapture of the church. It's referring to Jesus coming back for His own, His saints. He speaks about taking saints from earth to heaven, receiving you to Myself. Not coming to the earth for judgment, but receiving saints into glory to be with Him. I recommend 1 Thessalonians 4 to you. Here's a bit of it. The Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with Him forever. Put it all together. Some will go to heaven passing through the valley of the shadow of death. Others will not. At this event, those who are alive when the Lord comes back will not even face death at all. They'll just be instantly, suddenly changed in an instant. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's why Jesus said, Be ready, for in an hour that you think not, the Son of Man is coming. That's what's ahead for some. Now, what goes beyond that? What else is is there to do? Well, after the rapture of the church, I can't tell you all, we're out of time just about, but the church will go through the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. A huge, heavenly convocation and feast. That's Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. Then there'll be the judgment seat of Christ, or it's a place where we get rewards for what we've done. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Then Jesus will return to the earth with us. We'll be with Him. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to the end of the chapter and set up His kingdom. So, talk about a cure for trouble. Stop being so stressed out, disciples. Why? Because in my Father's house there are many mansions and I'm going to go prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and get you and receive you to myself. Only people who don't believe in the reality of heaven and the reality of God's plan for us can be swept up with perpetual heart trouble. Like Mark Twain, who heard of heaven and cynically said, you can have heaven, I'll go to Bermuda. You have to not know what heaven's like to say that. I'd say to Mr. Twain, you can have Bermuda... I'll take heaven any day. Now finally, in verse 5, Thomas answered him. After Jesus said, Where I'm going you know and the way you know, he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going 
And how can we know the way? You know, Jesus said they knew it, right? You know where I'm going, you know how to get there. But obviously, they didn't know that they knew that. And, and probably all the disciples are going, Yeah, that's right. But inside they're going, I don't get it. And Thomas pipes up and he goes, Hey, I don't get it. And I know we chide Thomas and call him the doubter, the, the apostle from Missouri. Uh, he had a question mark for a brain, all of that kind of stuff. But you know what? I just think he was honest. And he spoke up. And I actually am glad he did. Because if he wouldn't have piped up, we wouldn't have gotten this great answer where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Hmm. I wonder how many believe that. I wonder how many who claim to follow Christ believe that. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. That's an extremely narrow, dogmatic statement, is it not? He didn't say, I am a way. He didn't say, I teach the way. I'll show you the way. He said, I am the way. In fact, a literal translation of this verse would be, I alone, in contradistinction to all others, am the road, the truth, and the life. That's a literal rendering by Kenneth Wiest. It's not the first time Jesus said that either. Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few find it. And the, and the disciples understood what he meant, because in Acts, the disciples says, uh, in Acts 4, Peter says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, that pretty much wipes out all other ways to heaven, doesn't it? Whether it's by personal works or by rituals and ceremonies or any other way. Funny thing about the truth, by the way, it is very dogmatic. You know, I used to have a teacher in school bug me because he was so dogmatic. He insisted that 2 plus 2 always equals 4. How dare he? Why couldn't it be relative? And it was always that way, and he never made any exception. And I noticed something else. My bank is very dogmatic about the same thing, too. <laughs> no margin of error, except usually it's 2 minus 2 equals 0, but they're very dogmatic. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is a great place. Heaven is an exclusive place. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're sure that you're going there, that'll cure your heart trouble. You will live in the midst of uncertain, troubling, swirling times with a step and a firmness and a confidence that people will notice. Two men lived in the same uh, subdivision. One was a uh, salesman. One was a preacher. Preacher died. Salesman went to Florida same time. And he uh, telegrammed his wife 
but it got to the wrong address. It went to the wife of the deceased pastor. She was shocked as she read the telegram that said, Arrived here safely. The heat is awful. Knowing Jesus Christ makes all the difference between peace and trouble and heaven and hell. When a little boy walked into a store to get a dog because his dad said you can have one for your birthday, he saw the puppy that wagged its tail ferociously and said, I want the doggy with the happy ending. (laughs) And you know, as I look at life and all the ideologies and all of the philosophies and I compare them to each other, I want the one with the happy ending. I want Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. And I'm so glad God chose me. Aren't you glad that He chose you? Heavenly Father, there's plenty of reasons to be troubled There's plenty of more reasons not to be. And there's better reasons not to be. You have not only reasons, but you have resources. We know you personally. We've seen what you can do. We have watched you provide so far. We have every reason to trust you. Also, we know what's up ahead. We know where we're going. We know that there is heaven. And Lord, we know that when we pass through this life, there's a whole lot of excitement. A marriage supper, a reward ceremony, a kingdom to set up, a place to rule and reign with Christ that lasts forever in that eternal state. Lord, many of our troubles are because we are so myopic. We look so temporally rather than eternally. Lift up our eyes this evening once again, Lord, as you have reminded us already in worship. And may we say, in God, in Christ, we truly trust because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the life.